jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. Halcyon. Archives. Halcyon. Archives. This is Bruce Tannum for the Halcyon Archives on jasoncharles.net. We're here today with the three founders of the venerable Halcyon Record Shop and more. Sean Schwartz. Hey, Bruce. Ben Wild. Hello. And Steven Schwartz. Howdy. Welcome, guys. Well, it's Thank great you. to be here. We're sitting here in the all-new Halcyon. Just moved into new digs at 53 Broadway. A lovely little spot here. You should all come and check it out. We were talking about this before. Is this the fifth or the sixth iteration of Halcyon now? Fourth. Sixth. Depends what math you use, but <laughs> at least the fourth. Yes, at least Possibly the fourth. Possibly the sixth. Well, I've met you guys 20 years ago, probably almost to the day. Uh, September of 1999 is when the original Halcyon opened up in Smith Street in a then not quite gentrified part of Carroll Gardens. Yes, 9999. Yep. 9999. Yep. Pretty auspicious date and easy to remember, too. Yes. Came to me in a vision one night. <laughs> We're going to open on 9999. That'll be the key to our success. Yeah, not only was it in a vision, I think it was also on several like sides of buses and billboards, not advertising us, but the, the ad- VMAs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, oh. v- the VMAs were on that date. Well, let's backtrack a little bit, though. What was the actual genesis of the idea of opening the space or doing something that would then become Halcyon? Um, Well, it it kind of started out of my apartment in the neighborhood. Stephen and I both lived in the neighborhood for a few years at that point, and we kind of realized that um, there were more people that we used to see out in Manhattan and friends of ours and acquaintances living in the neighborhood than we knew because there really wasn't any social spaces where we would run into them. So we'd sometimes see people on the street and go, oh, hey, what are you doing over here? Oh, you live here? Oh, so do I. And some of those people were DJs who had records and uh, started coming over my apartment on Saturday afternoons where we'd hang out and uh, drink coffee and share the new records that we'd picked up that week. And DJs started telling some other friends going, oh, hey, you know, we're hanging out here and before we knew it, there was like a regular thing happening with way too many people for my apartment. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we first started looking around going like, oh, you know, we should just take this party somewhere else to a bar or somewhere like hanging out here in Brooklyn. Like they're kind of quiet on Saturday afternoons. They'd probably be happy to have some business. We'll come in with turntables and play records and drink their beer. Sounds and simple. It did. It sounded civil to us, but kind of nobody got it. You know, we were going around to different places and they were like, you do what? Turntables and records and Saturday afternoon. Nobody's coming to the bar then. And 
you know, we, we realized after kind of striking out with the concept as like a party that really what we needed was our own space. And that's how it started. That's a pretty big step, though, from just thinking about like hanging out and listening to music with friends to actually doing the nuts and bolts work of opening a space. Yeah, well, well we, we had the advantage of like youthful ignorance. <laughs> like, you know, it didn't really give us pause to think like, can we do this or should we do this or do we know how to do this? We were just like, oh, let's do, let's do this, you know? <laughs> and the, the space that you set it on, right on Smith Street, um, what was the address? 227. 227. And it was, uh, which subway stop was it? I got off enough times I should remember uh, it. But F to Bergen. That's right, F to yeah. Bergen. It was a great location. I mean, I lived in Manhattan. It only took me 20 minutes from door to door to get there. So Yeah, it's a pretty uh, direct route. And how long of a process was it, finding the spot, getting the place ready, coming up with the various concepts involved? Pretty quick. It was quick. I mean, at that time, nobody was doing anything in Brooklyn. Like, Smith Street was probably like 80% vacancies in the storefronts or people living in them, like, as apartments. Like, it's kind of a Bariqua strip of yeah. kind of forgotten part of Brooklyn. So. It really wasn't a lot of barriers at that point. We set up shop pretty cheaply. What had the space been before? Doctor's office. What's a doctor's office? Rather sketchy doctor's office. <laughs> yeah, kind of. A, yeah, the storefront, storefront doctor. Yeah. yeah, that was typical of what was there then. You know, across the street there was a a, a bar on, emblazoned on the awning yes. outside said Carlitos Way. Way. So you can imagine what they were really selling in there. I, I, I spent a little bit of time in that the bar. Halcyon served beer and wine. But when we felt we needed something harder, <laughs> we would go across the street and to Carlito's Way place. Uh-huh. Yeah, to, to like the um, <clears throat> basement. <laughs> it had a hot tub. Hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had seen the basement, yes. But uh, we're here to talk. We're not here to talk about that spot. We're talking. We're here to talk about housing. It's a different I'm, podcast. Yeah. Um, I think now would be a good time to mention that, you know, as I just said, you, you did serve beer and wine. Halcyon was much more than just a record store. Yeah. yeah, it was about five or ten things in one. Really, do you want to talk about that? Uh, sure. I mean, by day it was more of a cafe where anyone would really stroll in, including moms with strollers. Uh, and it was basically open to anyone. Uh, it served more as a cafe during the day. At night, it became more of a lounge where we served beer and wine, as you just mentioned. The record store aspect was nestled off in the back. Sean had that. Uh, pretty much under his uh, under his wing, uh, where we would sell more electronic-based, beat-oriented stuff, as well as we'd buy out collections and sell that stuff as well, uh, just stuff that would influence those more current genres, I guess. Right. We also, uh, in terms of the furniture and knickknacks and things like that, we kind of incorporated that in to kind of keep the inside ever-changing and just sort of evolving, kept it kind of interesting. It was um, sort of like a, you know, if you sit on the couch and you like it, there's a price tag you, could buy and you it. can take it home. Yeah. Yeah. So I recall there being board games as well. They were. Yep. Yeah. Picking up the pieces, you know, in couch cushions and, you know, <laughs> the end of the night was always fun. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I forget, yeah, forgot about the end of the night process. Always. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, had some books and magazines. Just stuff around. The, there was like, it was like kind of the, the idea was to have a, a spot where you, you could kind of come in not be pressured to buy anything just not have a traditional retail type of interaction with the customer but have things there for people to like casually graze on mm -hmm. right, you know? right 
And also the aspect of having listening stations, like record listening stations in the back for the kind of crossover people. Like as, you know, DJ culture, we're used to going into satellite records or something and listening to being able to listen to records. But I'm sure that there there is an aspect where we're turning people on to vinyl. Of course. um, Who wouldn't normally think otherwise. Right. Yeah. There's I always like to tell people when they ask me about my experience there is sort of like. You never knew who was going to come in the door, basically. I mean, you could be eight years old or 80 years old. There would be something for you to sort of tap into while you were there. Aside from, you know, maybe you'll buy a coffee, maybe you'll buy a couch, maybe you'll buy a CD, who knows. Or maybe you'll just sit there and take in the environment. Yeah, get inspired. Yeah. Did you have any growing pains? I remember when I... (laughs) Oh, did we? (laughs) I remember that one story about um, what you had just opened like that day and somebody wanted a piece of cake and... No knife. Uh, somebody <laughs> said, where's the knife to cut the cake? And there was yep. like, no knife. Yeah. yeah. And then the other I story... Just the, I just told the story, so... I, it, I, and I just told... It's funny, I just told this, this story uh, yesterday about how we... I mean, we were... It was like a four-day straight, no-sleep bomb run to get <laughs> the door op- doors open on uh, 9-9. And then we had our first customer come up, and they, had, they ordered a coffee, and we were, like, all happy. Got them coffee, handed it over. They handed <laughs> us a 20 and rung it up, and the cash drawer opens, and it's completely empty. There's <laughs> nothing in the cash drawer <laughs> whatsoever. Did, um, did the person get a free coffee? Um, no. At that we point, no. Out. We needed everything we could get. We yeah, sent, we sent we, someone to the bank for change. Yeah, yeah, we went running down the block to our neighboring businesses yeah. to see if somebody <laughs> could give us change drawer. Did you even have a credit card machine at first? I, we did. We did uh, set okay. up, I think. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, we, had, we had a few things <laughs> set up, but it was a lot of trial by fire. I mean, not, not only did we not have any experience, but what we were doing was something for which there was no real blueprint. Yes. Right, so, right. Yeah, there really wasn't. What there, it had, was, there had been nothing to my knowledge, quite like what, what it was going to that. be was something that it, it kind of needed to declare on itself a little bit, you know? So in right. a lot of that, I mean, it really is credit to the, the community that, that came in and wanted to utilize the space in various ways. And, and they brought, you know, all kinds of different energy and ideas into mm-hmm. it. And, and we just tried to facilitate it all. Right. right. And one of those, one of the energies, factors was the whole dj aspect of it and i it's hard to remember back then but 20 years ago that was probably the darkest days of new york city clubbing mm. yeah or nightlife that whole period from then till sometime after 9 11 probably it was the height of giuliani's war on mm-hmm. on nightlife drug raids were happening at the more full-on clubs like every week practically mm-hmm. yeah. and across uh, the street at the grid and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i credit really? the carlitos way place uh and and gentrification was just really kicking in full steam at that point. Yeah. And there was really no kind of chill place for that nightlife DJ community to just hang out and just mingle and be able to relax. Right. Well, yeah, um, I think it is treading a little bit new ground there because nightlife as a whole had never really had that. It had always stayed in its lane. It was at night. It was late at night, and it was you know dark undercover and out of the way places where mainstream people you know wouldn't wouldn't go. wouldn't go or wouldn't bother with it, and you know we were trying to kind of bring it out into the light a little bit and shine a little daylight on it and make a place where you could have a, a respectable face of nightlife by day, right? And and let other people who are not denizens of nightlife come in and get a little slice of it, a little experience of it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I guess it really, that was something kind of new in a way for any era, let alone that era. Yeah. Part of the cool aspect of it was seeing like the different like subcultures or subgroups come in on the different nights. Like Friday night, we had acupuncture hosted by DB, um, so drum and bass. Uh, Saturday night was we tried to get some kind of headliner or some something that would draw people. Sunday uh, was Under, Under City, City, which was like the ambient or down tempo group, and it was there were all different like kind of subcultures that that came into the space on on different nights. Uh, speaking of drum and bass, we're going to hear from uh, one of New York City's drum and bass heroes, DB, right now, and one of Halcyon's DB biggest Buckman. earlier supporters, an all around great guy. Yeah. This is D.B. Berkman, formerly known as DJ D.B. So many fond memories of Halcyon. Of course, we ran, Breakbeat Science ran a weekly listening party there. But my favorite thing about Halcyon was probably that I could dig endlessly through their wide selection of records and at the same time get a decent cup of tea. I mean, I remember he would talk about how his night was unique for him because he could play the music that he actually wanted to hear as opposed to the music that he was paid, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars and flown across the world that he'd have to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that was typical of what a lot of DJs yeah. uh, were drawn to in terms of having a, a different type of space and a different paradigm to play because, you know, DJs are, are used to being to some degree a slave to the taste of the dance floor and they, they have to work that floor but when you've got you know a small intimate little room with people sitting on couches you can really be free to do whatever you want um in a way that was new and refreshing and i think a lot of professional djs and and, and bigger name touring djs started to hear about the fact that we had this spot where you could do something chill and on top of it, there was a really good sound system and yeah. a comfortable DJ booth yeah. that you could do something both relaxed, scaled down, and also kind of professional at the same time. And that was something that the, a lot of DJs wanted to experience. Yeah, the sound system designed by Dave Soto, who designed the sound system at Vinyl um, with his signature crossover unit. It was pretty much unparalleled for a space like what yeah. we had. Yeah. So, so I think that there's part of that, like, it's almost most people probably had no idea about that. It was just kind of in the background. But for the DJ coming in to have a uh, club quality sound system with all the toys to make it fun Bells made a big whistles. difference. Yeah. yeah. People really wanted to play there. I mean, even though they basically weren't getting paid to play there, yeah. or weren't going to be much, certainly. Not uh, at all. No. I don't actually, think we paid in, anyone. In, 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 well, free, in five free, years free. of doing it, we actually yeah. really didn't pay anybody. Yeah. And, and people were fine with it. They understood it to be like, you know, a small spot with no cover charge where, you know, there wasn't really the kind of money being made. But if they were in town anyway or they lived in New York, people wanted to do it for the experience. It was something yeah. different, you know? Yeah, and, and, and I mean, you would get a lot of fairly... Big name DJs or yeah. very big name DJs, yeah. really. Both New York people like to be, and quite a f- not quite a few, but at least some sort of slumming it out of towners who mm-hmm. would ordinarily be playing like Twilo or someplace. Or sometimes even they they would do it as a side gig while they were they'd play Twilo, you know, Friday night and come play for us Saturday afternoon. Right, um, and you know, generally at that time, like the industry wasn't what it is now it's become pretty cutthroat and competitive so 
you know, in a market like New York, that type of thing just doesn't happen anymore. Not because there's not a place for it to happen, but because, you know, the big agencies and big money that's involved in bringing these DJs won't allow it to happen, competitively yep. speaking. But back then it was it was all cool. If you're bringing a DJ to town, you needed the exposure anyway. So if we were going right. to tag on like oh you know hey he's playing for us saturday afternoon but go see him tonight at twilo afterwards you know they were down for that you know most club owners and promoters were and that that's something that's just of a bygone era now yeah know? i can specifically remember buying a lot of records that i would hear the dj playing whoever it was mm-hmm. and i would ask him or her what that was or sneak a look and then see if you guys had it, and then I would buy the record. Well, we, we always encouraged the DJs that came in to dig in our bins right. uh, and add records from our collection into whatever they were bringing to the night. Sometimes they would do that exclusively. We'd even have people come through that just, well, I'll spend an hour in the store and put together a set. So, yeah, there was very often that aspect of, like, you're hearing it walk right up because it's piqued your curiosity. The DJ booth was very accessible. So mm-hmm. any anybody could just kind of walk up and have a chat uh, if they were friendly and find out what it was and often sell the music right off the turntable. And when it's done here, I'll yeah. give it to you. You can buy it. <laughs> sort of like a real world version of being able to buy a tune off of a Shazam after you've yeah. Shazammed it at a club Basically. or something. Yeah. But much more fun than Shazamming it. Now, why don't we take another little break and listen to somebody who actually worked at Halcyon besides you three. I mean, you guys had a great staff all throughout, but uh, this particular one is one of my favorites, Boone. Halcyon, and on and on. This is Boone. Uh, I was a DJ at Halcyon and a music salesperson at Halcyon, uh, probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, right around the 9-11 era, probably till like 2004 or so. It was by far one of the best times of my life, undoubtedly. I still have pictures on my wall now at home, Um, And I actually, in my job, am the head of enterprise solutions at the artificial intelligence company called Distillery. And a lot of the young people here have heard of Halcyon, uh, were fans of Output and so on. So it's kind of funny to connect the dots 20 years later. But it's amazing that I'm the old man now, but I'm still kind of cool due to my affiliation and association with Halcyon. I mean, there are way too many... Uh, memories to share. I mean, way too many. I can go on for hours and many drinks later. There's a good, there's a good point in there about how uh, Halcyon was a starting place for many people. Yeah. Like I think about, for example, our very first employee was Oliver Vernon, and what was his starting salary? Seven dollars an hour, I yeah, think. Seven dollars <laughs> an hour. He's now selling. Was that minimum wage back then? Um, oh yes, yes. Yeah. yes. He's now selling these collaborative art pieces for $120,000. You know, it's like he's, he's like that. And there's just the stories of where people started there and have now gone on to do so many great things. It's pretty yeah. incredible. At the time, his art consisted of um, making sandwiches. <laughs> but they were, they were beautiful sandwiches, let me tell you. <laughs> you didn't want to eat them. They were like... <laughs> He would take like well, twenty he, minutes he, to make a sandwich, but was, people would just stand back and watch. He was and an just accomplished artist. The plate, you know? He was an accomplished artist then as well. He just hadn't been like discovered, hadn't yeah. hadn't like gotten out yet. But he was he was applying his uh, creativity to the menial task ahead. But you know that was also you know his story is a typical one of a lot of people who worked there. We had a great 
sort of young creative community that formed around the place and a lot of people went on to do a lot of great things and a lot of people were inspired there and just brought to whatever it was that we hired them to do just a passion for the culture of the place and and that sustained it and drew more people to it Sean why don't you uh, talk about the (laughs) what we were discussing the other night (laughs) that was kind of funny actually I hadn't known all that but yeah, this this is kind of a good story. Um, you know, it was a pretty bohemian kind of staff and, and vibe in there, pretty laid back. So we didn't we didn't have, you know, a lot of rules. We we really eschewed making rules if we possibly could. In the five years that we were there, we had one one and only one time where one of our managers came to us and said, Hey, you know, we've got some customers kind of looking a little sideways at one of our employees because of how he dresses to work. And maybe it's something we need to address with him. So we approached that conversation with this particular individual and uh, it went okay. He didn't really change very much about his personal style, but the joke at the end was on us because now he's actually a very well-known stylist. <laughs> who uh, gets paid very good money to bring his uh, his personal look and taste to Hollywood stars, <laughs> musicians, and others. Still so. catching people's eye. <laughs> that, that's a, a one, one instance where we probably missed the call. <laughs> Oops. It, it, it was a very casual place. I mean, there was no rules other than don't do anything illegal. Yeah, we really we wanted Was people to discover it, you know, like we, we didn't we didn't want we just didn't like the vibe of like, you know, places where you go in and like this is very typical of, of record stores at the time. And I think what we really wanted was to be a little bit of an antidote to like the uber nerddom that comes with like mm-hmm. techno music right. and, and, and how it can be very off putting to somebody coming into uh, a record store for the first time where they may not know very much about the genre, the music they can't name the labels or the artists or might not even know how to express what it is that they like that they might be looking for. And, you know, there's a lot of looking down the nose of, you know, kind of mm-hmm. nerdy record store people that we experienced as, as, as young people kind of at that time trying to claw our way in and find out more about this music that was intriguing us in a you know, pre-internet age where you couldn't just look it up. Right. So we, we wanted to provide that kind of environment where, you know, it was great that we had a setup for professionals and we had connection to a lot of people who were professional in the record industry and, and, and DJs, but we were more oriented towards the neophytes and we were a little bit more even excited about having people come in and buy their first record ever from us or hear about what is house music for the first time from us. That was a little bit more satisfying because that, that was something that didn't exist. Right. You know? Yeah. It was like a pretty unique place as far as like just music discovery kind of goes. Right. As you say, it was pre-internet when things were a lot more difficult back then. You would read about records in magazines yeah, like, and, you know, two months after you'd already heard them a bunch of times right. out and you still couldn't, couldn't identify what it yet. was. You well, know? if you were wise and old clever like me, you would go and just bug the DJ and say, hey, what was that you just played? But but <laughs> most people weren't going to do that. So you had to rely on other means. And Halcyon was and still is, that means, to some extent. Um, you guys, what were some of the, are there any, like, incredible nights or incredibly weird things that happened that stick out in your mind or, you know, great or bad 
there was weird Incidents. things that happened every day um, <laughs> and, and great and bad things. And, yeah. and I think what you're saying before about it being very casual, um, it was like an open book. You know, there was no back of house there. So if you were a regular there, you interacted with us, the owners, our staff, the DJs. Everybody was like right on top of each other there. Like, so it was all out in the open. And if we were having a bad day or a problem with an employee or there was some uh, drama or intrigue amongst the staff or whatever, like the regular customers picked up on it. They knew what was going on. The gossip was around. Like, so yeah, there was very little hidden there. People right. felt very much a part of it for that reason, good, bad, or ugly. Yeah, I, I mean, I never really worked there, but I, I always felt like I knew everything that was going on there, basically, <laughs> just by hanging out there. I'm, I'm wondering what, what your guys' favorite night or favorite moment there was. Hmm. For me, I, I really enjoyed Peace Biscuit Power Hour. Uh, you know, what Bill brought to the table, I think, was kind of different and unique and, you know, just fun, low-key. That would be Bill, music industry vet Bill Coleman. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Bill had a great concept and, and, you know, like I said before, a lot of people came in and brought their ideas and their vision to our space and we tried to be the kind of place that said yes to everything that would try anything once. <laughs> right. And, you know, Bill's idea was, hey, you know, I've got all of these great connections in the music industry with all of these people who are fantastic musicians and have incredible taste and, and personal record collections. And they're not DJs, but I, I know them from hanging out with them that they just have great stuff to share. So he had this idea of bringing in some of these artists to DJ who weren't DJs. And that in alone itself now sounds like really trite and something that you've heard about all the time. And, but wasn't really heard of back then to have, yeah. you know, somebody who right. is a guitar player or known as a, you know, film director or anyone else come in and like DJ just because of their celebrity or notoriety. Who were some of the notable non DJ DJs that you that you had? Oh wow, we had uh, let's see, Corinne from Swing Out Sister. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Indeed, Avonport. Right from uh, Brand New Heavies. Michelle and Degocello. Right. Chris France and Tina Weymouth from right. Tom Tom Club and Talking Heads. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. That was a good one. Uh -huh. I mean, he actually walked out with a plastic Fisher-Price turntable, if I remember correctly. Moby. But I guess he DJs, right? Moby. Oh. <laughs> I said notables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there, there'd also be like, you know, we had, you know, Grammy-winning artists like Louis Vega would come in. And I remember the night that, that he came, definitely one of my favorites because of how it sort of unfolded. This guy, Adam, uh, was working uh, with him on some stuff with Masters at Work and had told him, I got this residency at this cool little spot. It's on a Wednesday night. Why don't you come by and, and, and play? And he, he sort of got Louis begrudgingly. He said, okay, I'll, I'll come by and support your thing because we're working on something together. And he didn't really know what it was or what to expect. And he walked in the door that night Saw, caught the vibe of what was happening heard the sound system saw the plays and he was just going to play a couple of records right he immediately got on the phone and started working and called in his whole band and this was like really before elements of life it was these are some of the people who became the elements of life right. band and within like two hours we had 
two conga players, keyboard player, his wife was there singing, and like we had a full band set up in there, just completely impromptu. Um, <laughs> and they just crushed it all night long. And that, that, that memory stands out for sure, just because it was like such an unexpected thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that could happen in a place like Halcyon where basically anything could happen. Yeah. yeah, it was like you know he came to us. It was like, oh, you got a you know you got a board. Can you plug this in? Can you plug that in? Can you you know can we make room for this? You know, and you know all of a sudden we had, we're moving furniture. We're you know, hey, you guys, sorry, you got to get up. We're bringing in the congas over here, and like you know, <laughs> we made it work. And that was it was that kind of like DIY spontaneous can do attitude. I think that, you know people loved about just hanging out there. A couple of times you actually had more f- kind of full on parties there. I remember when. Danny Krivik played there a couple of times. You'd kind of pull down the gate and move the furniture. That was the first. That was the first seven one eight sessions. That's where seven one eight. That's right. That's where I remember Benny Soto, who who does the parties with him, told me that. Yeah, it was it was in fact Benny's first endeavor as a promoter. Uh, You know, he had worked in the club industry for for years at that point, but had never really stepped out on his own to present a party. And uh, he convinced uh, Danny to do it. Um, they named the party Ache, and uh, yeah, we did it a couple of times until we were basically couldn't do it anymore because <laughs> <You know? laughs> I got arrested. That, yeah. that, 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 was, that was still a residential neighborhood with neighbors and whatnot. So well, it very you know it went from a certain type of residential neighborhood very quickly to a different type of resident. It was one yeah. of those overnight gentrifications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really in the span of like eighteen months that the switch flipped entirely. Uh, on the tenor of the neighborhood and um, yeah that restricted us but then when the cops came and they said they asked for the owners and the three of us go up to the cops these three kids yeah and they say okay give me your ID and I take my ID out and hand it to them and you guys both say I don't have ID on me and so (laughs) I'm the only one that takes the hit for it your nighttime events or anytime really was there any other any real trouble ever there were there any like fights or anything that ever happened at Halcyon or it didn't I mean it seems like a place there that would never happen but we had the tip jar stolen. Yeah, we had a, a few we, times. we had some we had some problems with thieves and shoplifters and yeah. things like that. Someone stole but a like, board game one time. They like ran <laughs> out of it and got into a car and like we chased after. It was like, okay, take it. Yeah. <laughs> that was their big heist. Yeah, stealing uh, risk or whatever. risk. Yeah, yeah. The, the Parker <laughs> the Parker brothers robber or whatever. There was a raid on the, the grid case. though one night. Coming back to the grid, our other subject of the night. Um, there, we, like we looked out the window one time and literally saw a cop doing that like back to the wall thing with it, like the gun in his hand, about to raid the grid. I mean, the most trouble we would have would be like one in the morning our next door neighbor coming down in her nightgown yelling at us in the middle of an event people are there uh you know or just you know problems with the cops we eventually got a a march visit and that you know really like put the kibosh on things or the landlord the ongoing battle with the landlord yeah Yeah. and the requirement that the that the building was only painted battleship gray (laughs) and the pop Torello black yes and then in the end the Stevie Wonder mural in orange and red across the front of it as the final (laughs) fuck you (laughs) yeah that might have done in our relationship with the landlord who is like like an 80 year old Italian woman in her house frock and uh, Mm -hmm. you know I guess sadly her her husband had been incapacitated many years ago and had an affinity for the building being painted this particular color (laughs) 
So we, 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 we painted like a 16 foot high image of a you know black man on the front. I don't think they took to that very well. You know, well, that was probably only one of the several factors that led after your you had originally signed a, a lease for a certain amount of time, and then when that time was up, that was kind of it for you guys, right? At in that, that spot, in that location, yeah. in that, that location, spot. yeah, and that 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 launched into uh, you know the next phase in the long history. Right now, we're going to hear from music producer Jonathan Benedict, who, as it happened, lived right across the street from Halcyon. Take it away, Jonathan. Yeah, Halcyon Smith Street was pretty spectacular. And it is basically the reason that I I moved to Brooklyn. Halcyon had just been open for a few weeks, but I, I noticed it on Smith Street and thought, this is like a dream. I mean, wait, it's a record store which, okay, you have me right there. But then also it's a cafe. They have this great veggie food. And, oh, yeah, all the people that work there are super cool and also really, really nice. So I found a place that was uh, right on Smith Street, and then I've (laughs) stayed there ever since. So I was there for the entire duration of Halcyon's existence, the original Smith Street location. and was there probably every week, multiple times, and there were just so many memories, so many DJ sets and people visiting Arthur Baker, just all kinds of legendary folks going through there. And there's so many records in my record collection that come from Halcyon. It's pretty, it's pretty bonkers. The original spot is something that I think about quite often. And to this day, it has an enduring legacy on, on the way I think about music culture in New York and what spaces can be like and what what the possibilities are for creating a space for for music and culture that's incredibly special. I think that's one of the things that was surprising to me is how much it really meant to people. Um, Like, people would come from Japan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The the people that came from Japan were were (laughs) following uh, several articles in some Japanese magazines that got published about us, and they would kind of come in with the magazine in hand, kind of <laughs> looking at the photo and then looking up to see that they're in the right place, looking back at the photo, checking again, and then immediately looking for us because we were in the photo and they wanted to get a picture with the owners. That was something unique to the Japanese tourists, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that must have been kind of fulfilling, though, that you had actually made something out of scratch that had was having that much impact, impact across the world, not just in New York City. Yes, it, yeah. it helped to... Uh, make the financially less fulfilling parts of the business palatable. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it was very gratifying to get, you know, a a lot of press coverage. Um, We never really went out looking for it, per se, but, you know, people would kind of come in there and they would just innately sense that there was some kind of catalyst going on for change here. Something Mm -hmm. was, something was afoot. Uh, and then also there would be some people who would come in and, or, or not come in and for whom it was just not something that they could grasp or comprehend, you know, right. big plate glass windows out front. So inside you could see people walk by and they'd kind of put their hands on either side of their eyes. <laughs> the looky-loos. Yeah. And, and they'd, they'd peer into this place and just, you could see from the other side, a look of total confusion <laughs> or a look of complete delight. And yeah. they'd come running in, but the confused people would just kind of walk away, not knowing what's up. So there, there's a little process of self-selection for the type of audience that came in there. And that's probably why we didn't have problems like you were asking about right, before, yeah. fights or people who just didn't belong. 
I think that the the biggest affirmation uh, that that at least for, for the way it felt for me was the piece that you wrote for Time Out. Um, that was three that months, was, I guess. That was a year. year oh, a year. That was ninety. Yeah. Oh, that's two thousand. Oh, that's two thousand. Well, yeah, that but, was a full year. Okay. I mean, to have our the picture of the place on the front cover <laughs> it was a year with, and three months <laughs> with with the the locals. You know, like our family basically pictured here: Jay Zotos, Amanda Blake, Juju, and. For it to say, a scene grows in Brooklyn. Halcyon is New York City's unlikely underground headquarters. I mean, that's that's pretty affirming. Uh, that was a pretty magical moment for for all of us. Yeah, yeah. You guys got a. I mean, other than this rag, you guys got, got a, quite a bit of press, considering you weren't really looking for it. Yeah. Yeah, you guys stopped me from uh, being allowed to talk to the press after the first time I did. <laughs> <laughs> What was it? Well, the no, it was, it was, you know, first we had to stop you from talking to the police. There's <laughs> 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 an order. <laughs> I made a comment in, in one of the pieces for Paper Magazine or something. I said something like, we're never going to be driving Ferraris or anything like that. I, I made some comment about, like, how this business is not about money. Right. And then, like, there was some decision made that Ben doesn't get to talk to the press anymore. <laughs> So I'm just happy to be yes. invited to this. We, so. li- we like money. <laughs> don't, don't say that we don't. Don't imply that we don't want money. But it, it was a project like that where like, you know. It felt like more of a labor of love than anything yeah, else. And, yeah. And, you know, we, in, in, in those first five years, you know, the the success driven by that press, you know, although it was organic, it was phenomenal. We like were successful way beyond what we ever thought we would. We had no idea what to expect, but the fact of people coming from all over the world and hearing about it and cleaving to it and the, the regular audience that we had was at times overwhelming, um, certainly very gratifying. But what money we made at that time, like we just put it back into improving the place. We just kept wanting to do more and more. So when it came time to move after we lost our lease, we didn't have... A tremendous, it wasn't like we walked out of there with like a war chest to kind of like grow this business. Like we're like, okay, well, well we did that. Now what? So here we are, twenty years down the road. What are you guys up to today? Uh, I'm pregnant. I've bared three children already. I wasn't um, going to say anything, but I could kind of tell. So now, uh, <laughs> now I've actually I left New York uh, back in 2011. Uh, I had a stint out in California for about seven years uh, with my partner, Zachary, and uh, basically slinging antiques and fine art. Uh, That's what my my thing has been, and uh, that's what I'm currently doing now. We've we've, uh, since moved from California to Southern Illinois. I do enjoy the Instagram posts from your business. Thank you. You want to say what the Instagram uh, handle is? Sure, it's just oddmidmod. Follow it. There's some cool stuff. I'm always saying I want that, but I can never afford anything. So, (laughs) thank you, Bruce. Ben, what are you up to nowadays? Well, at uh, during uh, the Halcyon years, the the initial years, I I had a graphic design business as well, Fusion Media, and I left that about five years ago and uh, moved into the education sector. And I'm very happy to say that uh, I've been working on starting a new high school in the Bronx. And the Walkabout Bronx High School will open in the fall of 2020 as a structurally anti-racist experiential community school, um, which we're incredibly excited about. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Um, Sounds like it. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we we didn't allow Ben to speak to the press or the cops, but Harvard allows him to speak to their students. Yeah, so you <laughs> said you're giving a lecture at, uh, at, at Harvard. Yeah, uh, I'm teaching design thinking tomorrow at Harvard with uh, a 19-year-old guy from Nicaragua who is an incredible uh, friend and teacher who is doing some great work with empowering students around the world by teaching this uh, process called design thinking. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. Oh, and my uh, Twitter is at Ben is wild. If we're going to do the social media thing. Sure. Why not? Let's do it. Um, And Sean, anybody that follows New York nightlife at at all knows Sean for five years was one of the guys behind output on uh, North 12th street in Williamsburg. One of the city's premier clubs, probably the premier club while it was open. Yeah, that that was um, kind of the really a, a culmination for me of a you know ambition that uh, grew out of Halcyon, but perhaps was too ambitious for Halcyon to contain. So it needed to be its own separate thing, uh, and I was able to get that open finally in 2013. So very proud and fortunate to have had the opportunity to do that. And we all missed the spot a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, re- recently departed as of uh, about nine months ago, but uh, a great run of six years, which in the uh, in the nightlife industry is kind of like dog eternity. years. Yeah, it's a, it's an eternity. Um, so uh, it was a great run that uh, that I'm very proud of and gratified to have been part of. And Halcyon itself has had a pretty good run. Still, under, still, under, still going under new ownership. We're sitting here in the new place right now at 53 Broadway. What are your feelings to have the Halcyon name continue on after all these years? Are I mean, you proud I, of it? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's wonderful to see that, you know, the guys who are taking the reins from us are carrying on in the tradition of having a, you know, vinyl driven music shop that's plugged into the community and plugged into the DJs and is now really in a significant way with the new setup here as partners with the etiquette space kind of hearkening back to what it was originally as this multi-purpose space and in a way that it hasn't since then so i'm very excited to see what it happens over here and we're excited to see how it does as well everybody come down here and spend all your money in the halcyon (laughs) record shop we know you want to I think that's going to be it for now. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a pleasure to see you and talk to you. It just feels I'm brought back 20 years to see all of you in one spot. Uh, and we haven't seen each other all in one spot in about true. that long. So th- this is quite a, quite a momentous reunion. Thank mm-hmm. you for helping to put this together and you, Jason, for producing it and having the idea to do it. Yes, thank you both. And this has been Sean, Ben, and Stephen, the uh, Schwartz slash wild clan sitting here at the new Halcyon. Thanks again, guys. You've been listening to the Halcyon archives on jasoncharles.net. Schwartz's are wild. Ante up. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bruce Tantum for the Halcyon archives on jasoncharles.net. Check out part two of our 20th anniversary special featuring more of the journey of Halcyon, still going strong as Brooklyn's hub for music since 9999. For more information on Halcyon, go to halcyontheshop.com.
Halcyon. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep. <laughs>